Shape Moda designs women's trousers to suit everybody's shape to get the perfect fit. Just imagine that as soon as you wear a pair of trousers, they feel like the best piece of clothing ever. Dress for your body shape with Shape Moda and make a huge change in your life now. Go to shapemoda.com and find out which body shape you have. Shape Moda gives you the perfect fit. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Today we are going to be speaking to an incredible woman who has been through an awful lot in her young life, but who, by waiving her anonymity in an abuse case, has begun to start the process of healing. And she came in to talk to us about that. Up until that point, you know, I was a very, very happy child. And I kind of, you know, I kind of hope in a way that I can almost get back to that. You know, I can start to heal my inner child. And I think that's what this whole process really is. You know, people ask me, why did I waive my right to anonymity? Why did I do what I did? And it's to heal that inner child, to heal that eight-year-old, that six-year-old Aoife. Now, we're off on our holliers for a couple of weeks after this episode and our wonderful producer, Suzanne Brennan, is finally off to get married after her wedding was postponed a couple of times due to COVID. So we want to send our huge congratulations to Suzanne and Paddy and we'll have Suzanne back in a few weeks. So while we're off on holidays and getting married and walking down the aisle and all that jazz, we will be rerunning a couple of older episodes of the podcast, which I hope you're going to enjoy. But now to today's episode, which just to warn you, some listeners might find distressing. Aoife Farley was six years old when her older brother, Cian Farley, who was 15, began sexually abusing her in their family home of Castle Pollard in County Westmeath. Last month, her brother Cian was jailed for four and a half years with 18 months of that suspended. And after he was sentenced, Aoife Farley stood outside the court and said that it marked the beginning of the rest of her life. Aoife had waived her anonymity so that her brother could be named and she said that her brother had literally and metaphorically held her in a chokehold for so long but after the sentencing that would no longer be the case. She said she hoped it would he would finally pay for what he had done and that she was determined to grow and to heal. She said, unlike you, I am not at fault and will no longer allow you to take up space in my head. Goodbye, Kian, she said in her victim impact statement, adding that she hoped she would never see or hear from her brother again. Um, Aoife now lives in Aberdeen in Scotland, where she works in a dog friendly cafe. And she came on the podcast to talk about her life before and since the abuse. I think you're going to find this a compelling interview. We are so full of admiration for this woman. Here's my conversation with Aoife Farley. Aoife, thanks so much for joining us on the Women's Podcast. We are always so in awe of young women who um, wave their anonymity and speak about these really difficult things. Last month, your brother Kean was jailed for three years. And after the sentencing, you spoke outside the court about how this had marked the beginning of the rest of your life. So how have you been feeling since that momentous day for you? I mean, thank you for having me. It's it's great to to be able to speak about it finally. Um, that was one of the things, you know, I, when I spoke about it on the steps of CCJ, I said, this is the start of the rest of my life. And 
I mean, I don't know if it's because the sun is shining and it's summertime, but I just feel like a new woman completely. It, it, it is it's just amazing the turnaround in, in the last month. And even, you know, I've contacted different therapists myself and I've gotten in contact with the, with the Grampian RCC over here as well and starting therapy and, you know, really trying to turn my life around myself. Um, even coming back. I mean, we we were there on the Tuesday and straight back into work on, on Wednesday morning at eight o'clock, straight back into normal life. And it's funny how, how life just kind of kept going. You know, it was such a big thing for me. But once I spoke out about it, I'm able to slowly start to move on now. And that's what I hope I can I can do for the rest of my life is just, you know, not let it define me anymore and just keep going. Because you're only 21, you're still so, so young with so much of your life ahead, which is brilliant. But can you bring me back to, say, before the abuse started and what kind of child you were? What did you love? What made you happy? Tell us about your family circumstances. I guess, I mean, I even spoke about it in in my victim impact statement. We had a very, very happy household. You know, we were a very, very close knit family. And up till the age of six, up until when the abuse started, you know, I was very, very independent. I was very sure of myself. I was, I was a very happy child. I loved school. I loved farming. I loved, you know, the music side of things, um, sports, definitely. I mean, where we used to live, the, the Gaelic football pitch was only down the road from us. And that was, that took up most of my life and swimming and dancing and singing and everything. You know, we were a very active household. And I think, you know, once the abuse started, I started to detach myself from from everything and the family and reality, really. You know, it was it was hard to know what was actually reality and what was in my head anymore. And it was an awful lot to deal with as a six year old and, and, and an eight year old. But, you know, it up until that point, you know, I was a very, very happy child and I kind of you know, I kind of hope in a way that I can almost get back to that. You know, I can start to heal my inner child. And I think that's what this whole process really is. You know, people ask me, why did I waive my right to anonymity? Why did I do what I did? And it's to heal that inner child, to heal that eight-year-old, that six-year-old Aoife. And yeah, I mean, really up until, up until the abuse started, I mean, we were, we were a very, very happy household and it did kind of continue like that, you know, even, once the abuse stopped, you know, things kind of do go back to normal for everybody else. But obviously, you know, it didn't happen for me. But yeah. Well, t- talk to me a little bit about your family dynamic, because you mentioned a bit of it there, because I think it's kind of crucial to why the abuse happened or sort of the, a, a, a situation that sort of allowed it to foster. Um, because it was a busy house and you have your parents, as, as many parents are, were very busy. So what was the setup? Who was in the house? What was the what was the story? So there's three kids and my parents, um, Keen is the oldest and then I have a sister and then it's myself, the youngest. So, um, yeah, my, my dad would be down the farm. Um, my mum was working here and there. And then obviously, you know, in the evening time was, was gone to camogie or football or swimming or Irish dancing. And I was left, unfortunately, in, in the care of my brother and, Kean was was responsible being the oldest. You know, he was responsible for me and he just completely took advantage of that. You know, um, it was it was awful because um, up until that point, like we all had a very, very good relationship. But, you yeah, know, he he completely took advantage of his of his responsibilities. 
Okay, well, tell us a bit about it as much as you can or as much as you want to. It began in 2007. As you said, you were only six. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what was the story? How did he try to convince you it was normal? Because I think there was a lot of manipulation involved. And, and as we say, you were so young, six-year-old. Absolutely, yeah. That's what it was. He was he was so clever in a way. You know, he was able to manipulate me and a whole situation And it's true, he really did make me believe that this was normal and this was his way of showing me that he loved me. And that was the thing was he'd always, it would always kind of start the same. Um, You know, he'd ask me for a hug and then he'd kiss me and he'd be rubbing my shoulders and then, you know, he'd undress me or he would already be undressed. And it was a thing that even in my, in the reporting stage, I I zoned in on it. He had this navy dressing gown that he always wore. And under that, he would only have his underwear. Sometimes he, would, he wouldn't have anything on. And even seeing a navy dressing gown now is like, brings me back to, to Ballymanus to where the abuse started. And it's it's horrific. But but yeah, it always kind of started in the same way. You know, it was very loving and he loved me and I was a good girl for keeping a secret. And we can't let anybody know Aoife because, you know, it's our little secret and you're so good and... And then it would always go the same way every single time. And then after he would just get dressed, continue on, make me breakfast, make my dinner. We'd go out and we'd play hurling or we'd play football or we'd go on the bikes or, you know, we'd go down the farm. And it was just, it's it's mad how it just kept going on as normal. And he just continued on as normal as if he wasn't doing anything wrong. And had you any comprehension of what was happening to you? Because obviously, again, at six, you know, you don't know about these things and you're, you, it must have been absolutely confusing. And then this thing that uh, of telling, keeping the secret, you know, I'm just feeling so angry listening to you, but trying to keep that in check. Um, did you have a comprehension of it or what way was your little mind processing it? I honestly don't know how I was that in tune with things back then, but there was something that was in my head and it was because we were very, obviously we were a very close knit family. So we were very open about everything. You know, sex was never like a big taboo thing. Mum and dad very much openly spoke about it. I mean, he was, he was 15 until he was 17. So he was coming around that age um, where, you know, it would be spoken about anyway, like in school and stuff and you'd be thought sex ed and stuff. So he was well aware of what he was doing and, me being me was just, I was always very sure of myself, was always, there was never anything that anybody had to explain to me. Um, but yeah, there was something just clicked in my head and I, I just knew that it was wrong. Um, and even at that, like my, my uncle is gay and he's married. And it was around that same time I sat my mum down and I was like, mum, do you mind me, do, do you mind if I just ask you something? And then I asked her, I was like, is, 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 is he gay? And even that, you know, I knew that I was very, very clued in for, for an eight-year-old. So, so yeah, I, I don't know how, but yeah, it's, I found some kind of something in my head. I found some kind of strength to, to sit my mother down and, and tell her what, what Keen was doing to me. So. Do you remember what you said, Aoife, at eight years old? It was a week before your Holy Communion, I think. Yes. Yeah. So, um, it was, a Friday evening and usually my mum would have to go to swimming on a Saturday morning and that would usually that would be the worst day because she would be gone from about seven eight o'clock in the morning until until lunchtime and obviously my dad being a farmer would be down on the farm from around about that time as well so I knew that you know the the abuse would have would have happened on the Saturday and it just I said that was enough um and 
I remember I was brushing my teeth and I started crying and she was in the bathroom with us. And I said, mom, like, I need to speak to you. Brought her into my room, um, lay in my bed for a while. It took me at least an hour to two hours to try and just get it out, choking on my words. Didn't know how to say it to her, what he was doing, but eventually said it to her. And straight away, alarm bells went off in her head. She she told me to, to settle down. She got me some water. She calmed me down and she went down to my dad. She said it to my dad and the two of them confronted Kean and straight away, being the coward that he is, he ran out the house and said that he was going to kill himself. So, yeah. And what happened next, Aoife? Um, They ran after him and something happened with him. Um, he ended up coming back. Um, it was my dad that ran after him. He, he managed to calm him down. And then it was kind of, we spoke about it again and they confronted him and he admitted to some of it and he admitted to to the lesser of, of what he was actually doing. And, you know, obviously being this close-knit family, they took him at his word because he had admitted to it and because I had obviously told them they believed that what they were told was what happened and we dealt with it as best as they could. And, you know, they, they put things in place that I wouldn't be left in his care anymore so my mum left her job and if she was going to be out the house she either took me with her or my grandparents lived across the road so I was put up with them or I'd be down the farm with my dad and I was never left in his care after that then. Can I just ask Aoife though um, before we move on from this you had told your parents everything that had happened including the fact that your brother was raping you and and in detail, you had told him them, but did they? Is it kind of like they believed his sort of milder version of events? I think, you know, I was eight, so it was a, it was kind of like a. Kian was rubbing up against me, and Kian touched me, and I didn't like it. And you know, Kian put his hands here, and and Kian did this, and they kind of took the gist of it almost. You know, they they believed everything that I told him and then he obviously wasn't going to say actually mom and dad I did worse than that but you know she's only eight so she couldn't tell you but um yeah so they 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 took us at our word basically and and did what they could with the information that they had and there was no talk of going to the guards at that point that you you remember not that I remember no and I know um, because I, I, I'm, I've heard you talking about it and I know that you are very much your parents did the best what they could, like you said, with the information they had. And you're not um, wanting them to be demonized. And I'm certainly not trying to do that here because I think uh, this is such a complex issue. But the effect of it was that you continue to live in the house with with him for the rest of your childhood. Absolutely. I mean, the the, the thing that I zone in on is the fact that it was the week before my communion and we had a big party the week after and his girlfriend at the time was allowed to come over and you know everything just went on as normal we went on our our first family holiday that June and we you know we still continued on as if honestly as if nothing had happened and I felt as though I almost wasn't believed because he was still allowed to live in the house because he was 17 he could have he could have been kicked out he could have moved out himself but instead, I mean, even up until when I reported it in 2020, he was still living in my parents' house. So it was me that actually had to move out that year. And, you know, it was just everything continued on as normal. It was never, ever spoken about ever again. 
And what was your relationship with him then, your brother, from that point on? It was very, very false, very, very fake. Everybody always said that they always thought that we were best friends because I was, I mean, I, I was in stage school. I, I may as well have an Oscar at this point for the amount of acting that I've had to do over the last couple of years. But no, I, I went to, I went to my sports. I did my music. They were my loves and he just happened to have the same interests. He was, he wasn't big into sports, but he was, he was more into the music side of things. And, you know, he just happened to be there. It was never a case of that I was going with him to the FLA or to the summer school or or anything like that or to a session that was anything. I was always with my parents or was with my friends or even my granddad. He would always come with me as well. And I'd spend more time with them than I would with him. But the way that it would it would look would be that Kean and Aoife are away on the FLA or they're, you know, away to Drumshambo or or something like that. Yeah. So what impact did it have on your childhood, Aoife? Um, I know, and not surprisingly, you found it very difficult all your life to trust anybody, which is understandable. Absolutely. It, I even said it, he has completely taken my, my childhood away from me, the guts of, of my teenage and early adult. But it, it's just, it's horrific what, what he's done to me. But I mean... I, um, yeah, I was, I was eight and for the last about 14 years now, it's, it's just been horrible trying to, no, I haven't even lived for the last 14 years. I've just been surviving every day, having to live with him, hearing his door, hearing the creaky floorboards. It was, it was just constantly traumatizing, re-triggering myself. But it was, yeah, it it wasn't wasn't the best experience, and you know, my mental health has suffered so much because of it. Not only because of the abuse, but for the last fourteen years, I mean, I I've been self harming. I have gone through eating disorder treatment. I have gone through addictions. I'm after like last year, I spent the guts of about four months in inpatient treatment, and. Uh, yeah, I'm a year out of that now and a year sober now. So all of which I've I've had to kind of advocate for myself. But yeah, it has definitely, it has had such a horrific impact on, on my whole life. But, you know. And, and Aoife, when you were going through all those things, um, we're talking about disordered eating, self-harming, um, issues with alcohol, all um, I think we can say stemming from the abuse you suffered as a child. Did you discuss anything with your parents about the effect that it had on you? Or was that a sort of a conversational avenue you weren't able to go down in your house? Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, it was it was a thing that I just had depression or I was just very bad at my OCD or you know, I just didn't want to eat and it was never a, okay, but what caused it? It was never a thing that we thought of what Kean did to me that it could possibly have had an effect on that because obviously we never spoke about it. So I just went on, I was self-harming, I was in school, stopped eating. If it wasn't for some of my teachers that noticed it, I probably wouldn't have gotten into the mental health care that I that I got and even at that, I mean, I got into the yams with the young adult mental health services and that saw me through my leave insert. But even at that, it was because I was so bad at my, with my anxiety, I couldn't even speak up in a classroom. So we did CBT to get through that. 
but still I wasn't getting to the root of the problem, which was the abuse. And, you know, that was kind of how it always has been, you know, even in inpatient treatment, I had spoken about it at that stage and was going through and was waiting for court and everything. But even at that, they couldn't even do anything for me because they were like, okay, so your eating disorder is triggered from your PTSD, but we don't have the facilities to treat your PTSD. So we'll just treat you and we'll give you an eating um, plan and we'll, you can speak to our dietitian and we can help with meal times. So there's not so much food anxiety. Um, same with the addiction. The addiction obviously came from the coping mechanism mechanisms because I couldn't cope with what Keen had done and went through all of that. So yeah, I think until, until last month, I wasn't actually able to deal with it properly, even in the professional side of things. So, so yeah, that's kind of why I'm, I'm definitely trying to start now is, is getting in contact with Grampian RCC and, and hopefully getting into inpatient treatment over here and actually get to the root of the cause. Well, tell me about that turning point when you decided that you were going to um, take it further because you'd spent a whole load of time in silence really around this issue, trying to act as if it hadn't happened, which as we know, just never works. So so what happened that you felt it was time to speak up and, and to take it further? Um, so it was around 2019, 2020 that I kind of decided to finally speak up about it to, to a professional. Um, I had a partner at the time and had broken up with him in the January and then was starting with a new psychotherapist in the March and it was my first assessment and she said if there was any kind of child protection issues or anything, obviously she would have to report it on my behalf. And it just like that, a light bulb went off in my head and I said, okay, right, you may as well just do it now, Eve. You're 19, 20, he can't do anything. He has no leg to stand on. You know what happened and he knows it happened. So you may as well, like, what was I going to lose by speaking out about it? So straight off, didn't speak about anything else for that half hour assessment the abuse and straight away she got in contact with Tusla and then Tusla got the ball rolling and then I we got in contact with the Gardaí and that was when it all started so um, it started originally in, in the March of 2020 but I obviously hadn't decided to move out yet um, I was going back to uni so I knew I would be moving out in the August so it was then the October of 2020 that I actually properly reported to the Gardaí. And what about your parents? How much were they involved in, in that decision? They weren't at all. Um, it was, it came out in a row between us in about the April, May of 2020. And I mean, he was still living in the house. I was still living in the house. So it was still very hush hush, you know, to kind of, I was told not to let him know that I was going to do this in case he did something or, you know, in case it jeopardized my case at all. So I had to actually ask my parents not to say anything to him either. So it was still very hush hush. They knew about it. I knew about it. And he was just kind of bombarded with it then when he was brought in for questioning in, in the December. And what kind of conversations did you have with your parents about it? Were they Did they try to dissuade you not to do it? They wanted me to weigh up my options, definitely. You know, it was, it was still very much, uh, are you sure? Do you, do you know what's going to happen? Are you sure you want to re-trigger yourself with all of this, you know, bringing it all back up? And it was also, there was a few rows here and there, like, you know, he's your brother at the end of the day. Do you know what's going to happen to him when he goes to prison? And it was that kind of thing. It was still trying to get in my ear 
to to not say anything but I was I wish I had that strength when I was eight but I was like nope absolutely no way I am doing this nobody's going to tell me otherwise I need to start living my life and that was it you know it was I told them on the way back up from so I had to go to Mullingar Garda station because I was living in Maynooth at the time rang them on the way home on the train home was like yeah so I just did this I've just spent the last eight hours in Mullingar Garda station and there you go and I mean fair juice to them they didn't have to but obviously because they were mentioned in in the report they were asked to give evidence against Keen and they did and you know even though they mightn't have supported me 100% with my decision and even now I mean we're not speaking but fair juice to them like it probably was horrendous but they still gave evidence against him and gave their statements and if you say you're not speaking to them is that right yes so tell me about that um I mean obviously over the last two two and a half years it's it's basically just the relationship has completely deteriorated to to nothing to not even speaking at all um you know again it's the it's the whole thing of why are you doing this to us and why are you do why are you doing this now and what good is it what good is going to come from it and you know he is your brother at the end of the day and do not realize the effect it's going to have on our family and all that kind of rural ireland perception of everything you know we were this big close-knit family you know at one stage we we all all five of us were in um our local gym and it was always a joke that we should do something like ireland's fittest family and you know stuff like that so this big perception of of the farley family that we were this great family and we had never had any rows and you know we were this poster family for the best family ever kind of thing so yeah it's it just and then my mental health has really gone down the drain in the last two and a half years and just I don't need that negativity right now so I've removed myself from that situation and even in my victim impact statement you know I said that at some stage I do hope we will reconcile but that will only happen when they don't have Keen in their lives and right now they are trying to support the two of us and I can't have anybody on the fence so I need you 100% or I don't want you at all. So that's kind of very much cutthroat. They're talking to him, but your relationship is broken down with him. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's it, it happened. And I mean, that's kind of why, I mean, I had my boss come the whole way from Aberdeen and, and he accompanied me to court both times. And, you know, he, even when it was, we were waiting to hear the plea, obviously, you know, kind of knew it was going to be guilty because straight away he admitted to everything. So um, he actually took me away for the day down to Glasgow on a work trip um, so that I wouldn't be thinking of, is he going to plead guilty? Is he going to plead not guilty? Do I have to go to trial? All that. And he's just, him and his wife have been amazing. So, yeah. Um, Your victim impact statement, you got to sort of speak directly to him. Yes. in, In the court. So how did that moment feel? for you I think up until that Monday and the week leading up to going to court even hearing his name or again it's it's the smelling of the aftershave that I mentioned in my victim impact statement that used to completely throw me but addressing him in court and seeing him as pale as a ghost and really like somber and and really in on himself 
and finally getting to pay for what he did, I I hadn't planned on it, but I turned around to him and I was like, goodbye, Kean. you no longer have a place in my family. And that bit of strength just bubbled up inside of me. And I just, I just, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing to see him like that, finally paying for what he did. It was it, life-changing is, what, is all I can say is it was life-changing. And, and Aoife, through the course of the of the court case, your your parents would have got to hear to the full extent of what happened to you um, in your home and, and maybe to an extent they hadn't known before because obviously when you were eight, you couldn't articulate, you didn't have the words to, to say it. Did that not change um, how they sort of reacted to your brother in terms of, you know, was that not a case where they were going to shut him out then? You know, I, I find it, I'm just wondering about that when they realised actually how how bad it had been. It didn't, did it change anything? I wouldn't know because I have kind of refused to speak to them. You know, they have tried to reach out and, you know, I'm, I'm sure that the last month or so has been horrific on them as well. But I am kind of at that point where I can't change what I did and I can't, you know, control how people are going to react to things. I can only control how I react to things um so yeah that's kind of what I've been zoning in on for the past month is you know how am I dealing with this and and how am I going to move forward from this you know my parents again I can't control how they reacted to it or or how they feel about him or how they feel about me all I know is how I feel right now so that's kind of what I'm I'm zoning in on yeah. And what was um your brother's reaction when you read the statement? He then also gave a statement, is that right? Yes, he he wrote a letter to me and and read it out after I gave my statement and basically I think I could count a dozen I'm sorry's and I just I think I laughed most of it. Um at how pathetic it was, you know, he said that he, he ruined me and he ruined the family and he was so sorry, but they're empty apologies because, you know, he, he knew what he was doing. He admitted to it straight off. He admitted to it and he was brought in for questioning. He pleaded guilty and no amount of apologies is ever going to take back my childhood and is ever going to take back the years of trauma that he caused. So yeah. Because going back to that moment when you decided you were going to talk, you, you talked about a relationship that broke up. Was it difficult for you to have relationships as a result as well of what happened to you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, still living in Ballymanus and no room in that house was safe. No room in that house was safe from from the the flashbacks and nightmares and everything and the abuse that happened in that house. Absolutely no room was safe. So trying to be intimate with a partner just completely re-triggered me and it was awful so yeah it I mean that's kind of the whole reason why that relationship broke down was was because I wasn't able to be intimate with that partner you know I absolutely loved him I worshipped the ground he walked on but in that that intimate side of things was just non-existent and it just you know then it all broke down from there and then my mental health broke down and yeah it was it was hard it's been very very hard and Aoife, you know, I, t- I mentioned at the beginning about waving your anonymity, which I just have so much admiration for 
all people, women, men, whoever that do that, because it because your stories can mean so much to other people going through the same thing. Was that a, a big decision? Did it take you a while to to wonder about whether you would put your name to your story? Never. It was never a question. It I knew straight off that if I was going to do this, then the whole world would know because being silenced by him during the abuse and then for the last 14 years like I've I've had enough you know I will never stop talking about it although I won't let it define me anymore it is such a big part of me and it's such a big part of of who I am and who I have been for the last 14 years but yeah it was never a question of whether I was going to to stay silent or not because even you know in three years time when he gets out of prison had I not waived my right to anonymity you know, a cousin could have turned around and been like, oh, Aoife, haven't seen Keen in a while. How's he doing? And then I'll be re-triggered all over again. Whereas everybody knows now. So, you know, they can kind of approach me a bit more cautiously and maybe not mention them or maybe do and ask how I am instead of being like, oh, geez, haven't heard from Keen, that kind of thing. Mm. And what kind of response have you had, first of all, from the local community? It has been overwhelmingly just amazing you know everybody that I went to primary school with and secondary school with and university and people that I knew from around the town that I may never have spoken to or you know a a friend of a friend kind of thing you know it's the, the response I've gotten is amazing the support and love and everything that I've gotten has just been amazing um I have you know Obviously, the relationship with my parents has broken down so much that I don't kind of have somewhere to go if I do decide to return to Ireland. But I have so many friends that have offered me a bed or their whole house or a, a room or, you know, if I want to take a week off work to come down to them in Cavan or Galway or, or up north or down in Kerry or anything, you know, it's 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 amazing. Mm. Um, Eva, you know, I can hear totally that um, your relationship with your parents is broken down and it's very clear why. But if you were to sort of, um, you know, talk about what you wish had happened in terms of how they'd responded to it. What do you, what do you wish they had been able to do or, or done? Um, and in the situation, if, you know, if the situation were different. It's very hard to know what I, what I would have wanted to have been done differently. You know, looking, it's very much, it's very easy to look back and say, you should have done this and you should have done that. But, you know, again, they really did the best that they could. And, the fact that I wasn't allowed in his care after I spoke to them the first time. And, you know, although everything continued on as normal, I still was, you know, never with him for any amount of time and things were put in place to make sure. So, you know, it. I don't think we could have done anything differently. You know, even at that, how I tried to articulate what happened you know, maybe they didn't understand completely what I was trying to say. And, you know, maybe they didn't understand the weight of everything. But yeah, I don't think, you know, looking back now, I don't think I, I would change anything because I have already gotten my justice and I've done it myself and I've done it myself for the last 14 years. So I think it almost needed to happen the way that it has, because I don't rely on anybody now. I, I don't, because I don't trust anybody, I have had to find myself and love myself and and find the strength and the courage to advocate for myself. And had I let that 
go and had I let somebody else do that for me, I wouldn't be the person I am today. So that's very well put. And I think that your strength um, in the last while has just shone through. And I know that's a hard one strength. It's not been easy and it's taken years of your childhood to get there. But my God, what a strong person you are. Um, is there anything now you would like from them that hasn't happened? I guess, you know, I would love for for us to just be us and for Kian not to be any way connected with us ever again and for him to be put out and never thought about, never spoken about, never contacted. But, you know, it is hard because, I mean, I'm not a parent and I, I don't ever want to be either because I would never like to see my child go through what I've gone through. So I'm not, I'm not in their position and I can't, I can't imagine what they're going through or trying to support him and trying to support me and still having this unconditional love for the both of us, even though he's an absolute monster. So I I can't say, you know, anything other than I just hope that we can reconcile. And when we do, it'll be that it's just the four of us and he's he's not anywhere near us. And what about your other sister through this? It's been hard on her, definitely. But, you know, um, I even I spoke about her in, in my victim impact statement that, you know, as well, it has been a very it's been a very difficult relationship. But the two of us are are there for each other and we are trying. And I mean, she she lives in Aberdeen as well. She's only down the road for me. And, you know, we're, we're really trying to make sure that our relationship isn't affected by by him and by court and by the media side of things. And yeah you know she's trying to support me as best as she can and I'm trying to support her as best as I can so you know we're trying to just meet each other in the middle and you know so far so good I'm very lucky that you know even with everything that you know I mean I even met her last week and we had a little catch-up so just baby steps but eventually we'll get there. And has he has she shut him out of her life? It's it's kind of a again it's it's a thing that I'm not sure and I think I'm better off not knowing because, you know, if she hasn't, then it'll just cause a whole world of pain for me. But, you know, she's she's trying her best to support me. And hopefully in that supporting me, she will have shut him out. But who's, who's to know? Aoife, you said something there, which I'd just like to go back on, that you don't see yourself ever having children. That's a, a pretty profound, um, there's been lots of profound uh things happen because of what happened to you but that's a huge one and that's is that something you feel very sure about absolutely yes that it's always been the thing for me ever since the abuse started is I never want to have kids I never want to have kids I mean I haven't even had a relationship in the last three years since I broke up with my last partner because I can't I can't do it I I need to to try and heal myself before I can try and commit to anybody else. You know, I need to try and find that love for myself again and trying to bring a child into all of that with all of these emotions and, and, and flashbacks and nightmares and just everything just wouldn't be fair. So yeah, you know, Aoife, I know we talk, we have talked much more in this country about the, the long term um, effects of these kind of abuses and situations in homes and in institutions around the country. But do you still think people there is an understanding of just how much it affects somebody? I mean, that's huge. The fact that you're not going to have maybe the children that you would have had had he not done that. And so many other things, so many other ways that it's impacted your life. 
you know, he got three years. To me, like when you think of how much he has uh, impacted negatively your life, it just seems like nothing. Do people understand, do you think, what it does to someone? No, definitely not. I think, you know, people people expect you to to just carry on as normal. And, you know, even coming out on Tuesday on, on the steps of CCJ, that was it. Done. Finished. We don't ever have to speak about it again. Life can go on as normal, but it will always be with us. It'll always be with me. I'll always carry it. I mean, even... Wednesday coming back into work one of my regulars has one of Keen's aftershaves that he used to wear and I had to serve him and although I know that he's in prison right now and he can't get anywhere near me and even when he comes out he's not allowed to contact me I was still brought back to Ballymanus and I was still brought back to to how when the abuse was going on and nobody ever speaks about that because you know it's oh she's got her justice she's spoken about it she's been on the news everybody knows so she's fine but, you know, I will never be fine. I can do my best, but, you know, it'll never be, it'll never be out of my head. And I, I think I speak for all survivors when I say that, you know, we all will, we will always carry it with us. And, you know, May always around the end of May, that was when I, I first spoke out about it. And that was, you know, around the time of the week before my communion. It's always a bad week for me because it always just brings it all back up. And, you know, I've never said that to anybody, I've, you know, because I've never had the, the space to speak about it. But definitely, you know, it never, never, ever goes away. Yeah. What did you think of the three year sentence? I always said that three to five was was enough. Anything over five was a bonus because I knew that because he was a minor and I was a minor, it would be lesser. And then because, you know, it's of all the mitigation that he was still living in the family home and things went on as normal and he has a degree and he was a manager of a bike shop and he worked with kids all of that would be brought in I was very very clued in I didn't have these unrealistic expectations I always said three to five and I mean he got he got the the four and a half with the with the 18 months suspended so ended up with the three and it's just you know it's enough because when he gets out because I've waived my right to anonymity people will know his face and anybody that knows me knows him. So it'll never be just three years because he'll, he won't have a normal life for the rest of his life. And that in itself is is more than enough for me. You mentioned, um, uh, going back to what you said in the court, you know, that this is the beginning of the rest of your life. Uh, tell us about your life because you have an interesting job that you just mentioned. I do. Yes. I love it. I can not speak about it and smile. I love it so much. Yeah. So I moved over to Aberdeen in the end of September and within like two weeks just happened to, to land into, into the long dog and, and applied for a job and straight away a full time job. Um, so we're a little dog friendly cafe and we have a boutique as well. Um, and yeah, I love it. I'm, I'm the supervisor now. I think it was about a month or so I was working here and I was promoted to supervisor and been working away ever since. So yeah, it's lovely. It's really, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I have a dog at home in Ireland as well. So it's nice to see dogs and, and friendly faces that on a daily basis. It, it really, really has helped me even coming back from court, you know, coming in on the Wednesday morning and straight away so saw my regulars and it was it was lovely yeah is there a therapeutic nature uh, angle to that job do you think 
Oh, absolutely. Definitely. I mean, dogs are therapy pets. Absolutely. They're just amazing. It's like they can sense that something's going on before you even know that something's wrong. And they're just, oh, I love it. Yeah. And it's so wonderful that you were able to share what you were going through with your employers and that they have been such allies to you. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, my colleagues and and my boss have been absolutely amazing to the point where they can even pinpoint if there's an aftershave, if, if, a, if a male customer is wearing one of the aftershaves and they'll either serve that person or they'll, they'll serve that table or they'll be like, do you, do you want to take a few minutes outside instead of how it used to be when I would serve those customers and then like run out the door out the back, 15, 20 minutes of a panic attack, you know, wouldn't be able to function for the rest of the day. Um, even to the point where my boss, Jamie, actually accompanied me to court because I really didn't have anybody else. And, you know, him and his wife have been fantastic. Um, so we work Wednesday till Sunday and most weekends I'll go home with him on a Sunday and we'll, we'll spend time together, all of us with his family as well. And, you know, they've really, they have really opened their home to me. It's, it's amazing. I'm so lucky. And what are your plans for the future? Like, where do you see yourself going? You're still so young, as I said. Uh, what, what would you like to do? Definitely. I mean, I've, I've gotten my own flat here in Aberdeen. Just, I can even see it. I'm sitting in work right now and I can see it here as well. So, you know, just across the road, it's, it's great. So hopefully, I mean, three to five years, I'll still be in Aberdeen. We'll still be working here at Long Dog. You know, hopefully by that stage, may have expanded or, you know, as, as far as, as university goes, I'm looking more into the business side of things now, ever since gotten, I've gotten my supervisor's role. So yeah, definitely. I've rooted myself here in, in Aberdeen and, you know, Scotland has, has been such an amazing turning point for me. It's, it's, it's just been so supportive and amazing. And the friends I've made in the short time I've been here is just, it's crazy. And I, I presume a lot of therapy still to go on because now you can really start to, to work on that. As you said, uh, little Aoife, six year old to eight year old, who all that stuff that happened all needs to still be processed because you weren't able to do that for so long. That's a big job ahead of you. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. It's a very, very long road. I mean, the, the court side of things was only the start of it, it was only the beginning of a long road of healing and, and growth for me. But, you know, I've, I've started the process and I've again have, have advocated for myself and have gotten in contact with different, um, therapies and therapists and stuff. So hopefully, you know, sometime soon things will start to get better. Mm. Well, Aoife, um, I can't tell you how much I admire you and how grateful I am to you because, uh, I know that was very much what you wanted to do, waving your anonymity, but you know, it's not for everyone and it shouldn't be. And some people can't do it, but you found the strength and, and you had that sense of justice that you knew that that was the best way to go forward for you. Um, and I'm just so grateful to you and I admire you so much. And the fact that you can sit there and talk about it and know that, you know, I think what it is sometimes is like when the things happen to people, then they get treated as if they are the bad person. You know, we see it all the time. But what you've done is if you reclaimed that story where it's very clear what happened, who was the victim, who was the perpetrator and who should be punished and who should now get to live their life free of that pain. Exactly. I really hope that that's what happens for you. And I think it will, because it sounds like you've got great support there. Definitely. Yes. So Aoife Farley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 
that's it for now. Um, thank you so much to Aoife Farley. What an incredible woman she is. And if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast, you can call the National 24-Hour Rape Crisis Helpline at 1800-77-8888. That's 1800-77-8888. You can access text service and web chat options at drcc.ie forward slash services forward slash helpline or visit rapecrisishelp.com as well. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram or email us at the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>